Well, good morning. I am freezing cold. I sat there for like 20 seconds, and that's where, that's where the AC comes out. Um, if you have a Bible, can you turn to Galatians chapter 3? And we're going to be looking at uh, verse 23 to 29 this morning. Um, so Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 29. Um, we typically will read from the ESV. I'm going to read from the NLT this morning. There's not a huge reason behind that other than that as I was preparing, it was just friendlier, um, just easier to, to read. Um, so we're going to read from the NLT, and that's going to be on the screen. Um, so Galatians 3, verses 23 to 29. Paul says, Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. For you were all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Amen. Well, if you've been with us over the last number of weeks as we've walked through the first few chapters of Paul's letter to the Galatians, you've probably noticed some themes emerging. And it's really easy with a book like this to lose the forest for the trees, right? Because there's a lot there. And it's easy going from week to week to forget that we're really following one stream of thought and one, one argument that Paul is making, right? Paul started chapter three with a shot. He says, who's bewitched you, foolish Galatians? Why have you forgotten what you received from me? He asked them. Why have you added to the gospel? Why are you making up rules and commandments that the Father hasn't actually given to you? And so we've heard a few times about the need for Christians for us to realize and understand that we can't actually do anything to, to earn the love of God. But here's the force for the trees part. Throughout this chapter, Paul is talking about a tension that exists that's really at the heart of the Christian faith and identity, and it's a tension between two good things. Our passage this morning is really a continuation of Paul's answer to a question that we heard about last week in verse 21. And it's the question that really this whole chapter is looking at, uh, and, and looking to answer, it's this. Is the law of God opposed to the promises of God? Really, what he's asking is, is the law of God opposed to grace? Think about it like this. If I give you money on the basis of a promise, if I promise, Jason, after the service, I'm going to give you $100. Not going to. But if I make that promise, all you have to do, all Jason has to do is believe the promise and come to receive the money, right? Like if, if he doesn't believe me, he's not going to get it. 
All you have to do is believe and receive. But say, for example, if I said, I'll give you, Jason, $100 if you wash my van, which, if you've seen our van, works out to like $6 an hour or something. It's conditional, right? Receiving that money is conditional. It's law. I'm offering that money on the basis of what you can do to earn it. It's conditional. It's contractual, right? So Paul says in this chapter, yes, promise and law, grace and law seem to be at odds with one another, right? A thing cannot at the same time be a gift and a wage. So is the law opposed to grace then? Is there somehow a conflict between what God sets out in his commandments to us and what he says about himself? Or can it, be, can it be possible to have both law and grace in your life, right? In your thinking, in your way of being, in your family, in your relationships, right? These principles seem so intrinsically opposed. Can they coexist? You see, what Paul does in this chapter is show that they're intrinsically different, law and grace, but they're not intrinsically opposed. There's tension between the two of them. And it's all over the Bible, Old and New Testament. Listen to Exodus 34. Moses receives the law from God. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Same sentence here. But who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I'm the Lord, full of grace to thousands, forgiving sin and transgressions. Verse 7, but who will by no means clear the guilty, he says. In fact, I'm going to make your kids and your grandkids pay for what you do. He says, I'm a forgiving God, but I'll never forgive. How does that make sense. How can we make sense of that? How can we make sense of this God who brings law and grace into closer proximity than any one of us are actually comfortable with? Right? I I don't think many of us are comfortable with those two things being together because we don't want them together, right? We want one or the other because we want to control our lives. We want to believe that we're in charge of how things are going. I think, to generalize, most people tend to fall in one of two camps. We'll call them, we're thinking summertime here, we'll call them law camp and cheap grace camp. Think, if you will, of summer camp. You pack up your bags and you go to law camp. The camp counselor at law camp is a former military man. He's got that crew cut. He runs a tight ship, but it's not a fun ship. Um, He's actually not around all that much, but he seems to show up whenever somebody screws up, right? At law camp, there's rules, lots and lots of rules, and clear consequences for those that don't follow them, which is what many of us want when we're able to keep the rules, or for other people, right? We want a God of justice. So the campers at law camp, what they come to learn is that if you follow the rules, the camp counselor will leave you alone. At law camp, if you're good at being good at keeping the rules, you're in charge. You're free in your own way. You see, if, 
If there's a set of rules that I need to keep, I can maintain control over my life. And I don't owe anyone anything. I don't owe God anything because I've earned my place, right? That's law camp. Now, on the other side of the lake, at Cheap Grace Camp, it's a pretty different place. You pack your bags, mom drops you off, and from a distance, you can hear it. You can see it. Kids running around, having a great time. The camp counselor at Cheap Grace Camp is actually nowhere to be found most, most days. He comes around every week or so and, and tells everyone that they've been really great campers, even though they've left a huge mess in their cabin and they didn't put the boats away. Um, the only rules that apply are the really serious ones. The rest, it's up to interpretation. It's a lot of fun. You see, at Cheap Grace Camp, it, anything goes as long as you say that you're sorry occasionally, you're, if you're good at checking in with counselor, maybe like every seven days or so, uh, you keep them happy, you're in charge, right? You maintain control over your life. You can be free from owing God. or They're actually very similar camps in the end, right? You see, in both these camps, there's this strange parallel. You have this illusion of, of freedom and control when in reality, you're ignoring reality. You're ignoring the tension, Right? Whatever camp you tend toward, the tension still remains. How can God demand perfection and absolute holiness and still accept me, still love me? So you've got to face it. How can this tension exist? How can God, when he says that forg- forgiving iniquity is part of his nature and character, how can he still demand perfection? Without, like, he's not saying he's just going to let things slide. How can it be? Well, the Apostle John addresses this head-on in the first chapter of his gospel. He says that grace and truth came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Grace and truth, promise and law meet in one person. This God-man in whom it makes sense. Right? And being in a relationship with him changes you. It actually reshapes your identity in such a radical way that you stop running back and forth between those two camps. And you stay by his side. Right? And that's exactly what Paul is, is getting at in his chapter. Remember, the forest for the trees part. Big picture. Paul is telling the church that you'll never walk through that tension and into peace until you realize that what frees you from running back and forth between law and grace and law and license is a radical change in your identity. So, long introduction. What are we doing this morning? Really simple. I want us to explore two key questions about our identity that we see in this passage. So first, who were we or what were we under the law? And secondly, who are we in Christ? So what was our identity under the law? Paul set out in verse 19 to explain the purpose of the law. And by verse 22, we're still waiting to hear what it is, right? We've, we've heard what the law can't do. It can't give life. All it can do is reveal sin. And yet, even it, in its apparent failure and weakness, the law was still doing God's work. It was preparing for something, something else, right? The law couldn't justify us, but it, but it could prepare us for that. It couldn't make us right, but what it could do is drive us to faith. Martin Luther put it like this. He said, the law does contribute to justification, not because it justifies, but because it impels one to the promise of grace and makes it sweet and desirable. 
Therefore, he says, we do not abolish the law, but we show its true function or true purpose and use. Namely, that it is a most useful servant impelling us, pushing us to Christ. Therefore, the principal purpose of the law in theology is to make men not better but worse. That is, it shows them their sin so that by the recognition of sin they may be humbled, frightened, worn down, and and so may long for grace. Look at verse 23. We start to see how the law does this. Paul says, Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. What was our identity under the law? Paul gives us two metaphors to help us understand. First, Paul says we were prisoners. We were placed under guard. So listen, walk back to Genesis. Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. God creates everything. It's good. God and humanity are in relationship. They don't need a mediator between the two of them. Genesis records for us that Adam used, and God used to walk together in the cool of the evening. There's, there's closeness. There's, there's peace. But then sin comes into the world and into the human heart and shatters that relationship. And man, man's cut off from that, that peace. And then you fast forward all the way to Moses and, and God gives humanity the law, which it just named what was already true, right? Humanity was broken in the garden and now needed a guardian. It needed fences to keep us from completely destroying ourselves. So what Paul is saying here is that from that moment on, we were placed under the guard of the law. It's this language of being held captive, held prisoner, under lock and key. The law restrains us, but it restrains us for a purpose, right? Twice in verse 23, Paul hints at this. He says, before the way of faith in Christ was available, and then he says, we were given the law until the way of faith was revealed. He says it twice. You see, the purpose of the law was to preserve us, to preserve humanity until the way of faith was available. Now that phrase, the way of faith, we're going to look at that and talk about that more later, but just stop and consider for a moment. The law was a good gift. Truth is a good gift, right? The truth can set you free. The law revealed and reveals what's true about us. Listen, there's nothing that you could tell me that would shock me, right? Nothing about your habits, your actions, nothing about your relationships, your friendships, nothing about your fears, your feelings, nothing would shock me. I'm sure there'd be things that could concern me, right? But not shock me. There shouldn't be anything. If you're a Christian, there shouldn't be anything that anyone else tells you that really makes you go, right? Like, Christians are realists about human nature, right? We're all flawed. We're all broken. We're all wounded. So listen, if you, you can't get help for something if you haven't been honest about the state of it, right? It's like turning up the music in your car when it's making that funny noise. It's still making the funny noise, right? The truth is important because sometimes the sometimes painful process of facing the truth about my own condition drives me to call out for help. And the truth is, apart from Christ, we're sitting in a prison. 
Right? Now, the second metaphor that Paul uses to show our identity under the law is in verse 24. He says we were like children, kind of like children at a boarding school. Look at verse 24. He says, let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. That word guardian, it's literally the word for tutor or pedagogue. In the Roman world, like in many cultures, the wealthy would would send their children to be trained up in what amounted to kind of like boarding schools or with live-in caretakers because the parents didn't want to do it. Can I get that? Um, So these tutors were less teachers and more disciplinarians, right? Uh, In ancient drawings, they're depicted with rods or canes in their hands, uh, the more modern equivalent, like if you think of it like this sort of stereotype of this strict British like school headmaster um, at a boarding school, right? They're going to take care of you. They're going to make sure that you keep out of trouble, but you might end up with a bit of trauma. Um, but they're there to make sure that you follow the rules. Paul uses the word guardian a few times. Um, in his writings. And each time that he uses that word guardian, he makes sure to distinguish between a guardian and a parent. He says to the Corinthians that they they might have 10,000 tutors or guardians in Christ, but you only have one father. He says, in in other words, you have plenty of people to discipline you, but you only have one father. Later in that same chapter in Corinthians, he he asks him, am I to come to you with a rod in my hand, like a guardian? He uses that word. Or in love and a gentle spirit like a father. So what Paul is saying is that the law isn't like a parent to us. It's like an employed guardian or tutor whose job is to discipline and monitor. Right? The law was given to, to rein us in because we needed it. Right? If you have a kid or you've been around kids, you know this is true. Right? At the school I work at, we don't have a long list of rules. We kind of have those guiding sort of principles like uh, be kind, be respectful, those, those sort of things. Right? Big picture, you want kids to do the right thing because their hearts are in the right place. But what happens? They still need a guardian. Right? They need protective custody. Sometimes you've got to make a rule on the spot. Rules that you wouldn't think you'd need, right? Now listen, a parent or a guardian doesn't make up a rule for no reason. There's a purpose, right? The purpose is, one, to avoid chaos, yes, but also the primary purpose is to preserve the kid, right? To preserve the kid so that when they're older and they've learned through those fences... They've learned and they've formed a character that will be strong enough and durable enough to move through the world without a teacher or without a parent next to them saying, hey, don't do that. Right? That's what the law does. Paul says, God gave the law in his grace in order to prepare and preserve us for the day of his promise. But it's not the promise itself. John Stott explained it uh, better than I can. He says, not until the law has bruised and smitten us, will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds? Not until the law has arrested us and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification in life. 
Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us, even to hell, will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. He goes on, he says, God's purpose for our spiritual pilgrimage is that we should pass through the law into an experience of the promise. The tragedy is that so many people separate them by wanting one without the other. Some try to go to Jesus without first meeting Moses. They want to skip the Old Testament to inherit the promise of justification in Christ without the prior pain of condemnation by the law. Others go to Moses and the law to be condemned, but they stay in this unhappy bondage. They're still living in the Old Testament. Their religion is a grievous yoke, hard to be borne. They've never gone to Christ to be set free. So the question is, have you gone to him? Right? Have you gone through that journey? Have you walked through the law, through the Old Testament, to the hope that's found in Christ? Have you felt your need and run to him? Or are you still living under the shadow of the law? Because look at, look at verse 25. And now, Paul says, now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. That's good news. We no longer need the law as our guardian. Paul's phrase, and now, or but now, states clearly that we're because of what has happened, we are quite different than what we were, right? Because the shadow of the law no longer hangs over our heads, we're different, altogether different, because the way of faith has come. The phrase is back, right? The way of faith. It's that spiritual pilgrimage that John Stott talked about, right? To put my faith into something is to place the full weight of myself onto that thing, I trust it to hold me, right? The full weight of all my need, all my brokenness, all of my mess, all, all my sin, all the crises of my soul, right? I take those things and like the blind beggar, cry out, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. So what is the, the way of faith? Well, it's the way of following Christ, right? It's not just that I cry out once, I have one moment of trusting him, and then I check the box and kind of keep Jesus in my back pocket, like a, a, a life, insurance policy, uh, life insurance policy in the safe. Because the way of faith is the way of following Christ and being with him, I don't need the law anymore as a guardian. I don't need the law as, as a stand-in parent because I have him, right? I have his spirit in me. Which leads us to the answer of our second question. What are we in Christ? What's our identity in Christ? It's the core, core identity that we have in Christ. Verse 26, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Such a simple sentence with incredible implications. This is the pinnacle of Paul's plea to the Galatians. Who bewitched you, he says, who bewitched you into thinking you needed to do something to earn God's love? Why would you think that, he says? Why are you holding on to something that was never going to save you? 
Why are you holding on to the law? Why would you want that? You're his children, he says. You see the contrast, right? The law was like the stern headmaster standing in for your parents, but guess what? The parents are here to pick you up for summer vacation. We don't need, we don't need the guardian anymore. So at the core of our identity in Christ is the reality that we've been made sons and daughters, children of God. Listen, do you, do you want to know what it's like to be a child of God? I, I debated whether to, whether to read this. It's a bit long, but what are you going to do? I've got the microphone. Um, it's worth it. So right now, just listen. Listen to a story that Jesus told that perfectly sums up what it's like to be a child of God. Jesus told his disciples this story. Um, As I read it, I just think, what is it like to be a child of God? A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. I will go to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me, take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. The party began. What's it like to be a child of God? How does God treat you when we've wandered away? When we find ourselves in a distant land? He stands on the porch looking for us to return. He's full of love. He's full of compassion. He runs, he runs to you. That alone is scandalous in Jesus' day. Patriarchs, the Father, they do not run, right? To run in this world would have, they're wearing robes. He would have had to pick up his robes and run. It's undignified. He embraces us. He, he greets us with a kiss. He, he grabs the finest robe and, and clothes us in dignity. He trades our, our dirty and torn up garments and replaces them with splendor, the finest robe. He calls us 
daughters and sons. He gives us a ring, a, a symbol of the position that we hold in the family. Right? The party begins. I think some of us, the reason we forfeit the peace of Christ for running between those two camps of law and grace is because we've failed to grasp what it actually means that God would call us his children. Right? I think we... We think of the gospel too often in terms of what was taken from us, right? My sin was taken from me. My burdens taken from me. My filthy garments taken from me. Yes, but Christian, you're not left standing on the porch. He didn't leave you standing on the porch. You're clothed in new garments. The gospel's what's taken from you, but also what's given to you, right? Think of it another way. The debt of your sin has been paid in full, yes, but not only that, the righteousness of Christ has been credited to you, right? The perfect record of his holiness is yours, and when God looks at you, he sees you as though you'd lived a perfect life. Don't miss that. He he loves you. He calls you his child. And look at what Paul, he continues on, verse 27. He says, And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. Right? Like like putting on new clothes, just like the story of the prodigal son. In Christ, you're a new creature. You have a new identity through this union with him. So out of this, Paul continues. He says in verse 28, There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. For you are, all, you are all one in Christ Jesus. So listen to what he's, he's talking about, our identity. And listen to what he's saying and what he's not saying. He's not saying that those, those things no longer exist. Right? That's obviously not the case. There are Greeks and Jews. There are slaves and free. There are male and female. Those identities exist. They're, they're important. Paul's not saying, hey, we can be colorblind now, right? Race doesn't exist. Gender doesn't exist. Socio- socioeconomic statuses don't exist. These things, that's not what he's saying, right? He's, he's saying these things are still important, but they're secondary, right? Those things do exist. They're massively important in how we experience the world. It's the word or that, that's important. The division is gone. It's no longer either this or this. What Paul is saying is that these things no longer, they're no longer the primary or foundational thing that determines your identity, right? He's speaking to a culture about the three most important things in their world, right? Race, money, and sex. And he's saying this, listen, your ultimate identity isn't in those things anymore. Your primary identity is son of God, daughter of God. Those other things Yes, they exist, but they no longer divide us. We have unity because we're all one in Christ. And you see, it's only when we're in Christ that we become able to see people the way that Jesus sees them, right? And treat them the way that he treats them. And those, those other things don't become reasons for us to divide ourselves, Right? Think of the context of the letter. We've talked about it a lot. The Jewish Christians were trying to force their Gentile counterparts to take up parts of the Jewish law that they didn't need to. In a sense, they were saying, look, we're the children of the promise. We're Jewish. We're the family of God. You Gentiles, you're in. 
but you're kind of like the second cousins of the family, right? To get fully in, you just got to do a couple things. And what does Paul say? He says, absolutely not. Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, male or female, you're children of God. And he says to them, he says this in verse 29, and now, now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. God's promise all the way back in Genesis, God's promise belongs to you. You are his heirs. He's talking about us. So the question for us this morning as we finish is, is, is clear. How will we now live in light of that promise? How will we now live knowing that we're his heirs? How does that change my life? Well, if, if I'm an heir and all the promises of God are for me, that has to change just maybe a couple things about my life. Right, and the way that I view the world, right? That that launches me beyond all of the temporary cares and worries of this life. Right? I can know with with certainty that in the end everything is gonna be okay. Right? It might not look like I want it to or hope it to look, but in the end it's all gonna work out. That changes how I face my day-to-day circumstances and struggles, but it also shapes how I view the world around me, right? I can know that actually this redemption is not for me only. It's not just for individuals. He's, God is in the business of, of resurrecting the, the whole of creation, right? It changes how I view the people at my work or at my school or my neighbors. Because like the Galatians, you and I, as people in the church, I'm assuming most of us, I think, here this morning, like I recognize a few of you, we're in the church, right? We are at a real danger of slipping into a law-based view of the world rather than a promise-based view of the world. And so when we see people, Christian or not, living in ways that don't align with our views, we condemn them in our heads rather than hoping and praying that God would reach them, right? We kind of just look at them and go, well, they're not. They don't think this way or vote this way or, or whatever. We become more passionate about these side things than we are about extending grace. That story, the story that Jesus told of the prodigal son, it ends with a warning for people like us. The story continued. The party's going on, but meanwhile... The older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother's back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when, yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on, on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. 
we had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And that's where the story ends for the elder brother. We, he can't handle seeing the grace of the Father extended to someone that he doesn't think is worthy of it. And the story ends with the Father pleading with him, come inside, come to the party. Right? He doesn't love the younger brother more than the older. He goes out looking for the older just like he did the younger. But we don't know what the older son ultimately does. Question remains at the end of this story. You see, the failing of both sons in this story is in that they reject their sonship. Right? The younger son essentially wishing his father were dead, saying, give me my share of the inheritance. The older brother, how does he view the father and his relationship to him? Well, he calls himself a slave. All, he says, all these years I've slaved for you. Never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. Right? Law, cheap grace. Both were kind of doing their own thing. And the father's response to the older son, everything I have is yours. The promise is yours. Why, do you, why would you resent that same grace being shown to the younger brother? And so you see what Paul is so desperate for the Galatians to know, Jew and Greek, is that they're all members of the household of God, that their identity is, is no longer found in anything but Christ, that their security and their future is, is found in him. Paul is telling the church and us that we'll never walk through that tension between law and grace and into peace until we realize that what frees us is is fully submersing ourselves into our identity as children and heirs of God. And understanding that we don't need to learn his earn his love or or his acceptance, but that our, our obedience to him flows from or out of love for him. The poet uh, William Cowper explored this in a poem just to finish. Andy and the team can come up. He says, How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. I toiled the precept or the law to obey, but toiled without success. What shall I do was then the word that I may worthier grow. What shall I render to the Lord is my inquiry now. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us, um, help us to be a people that trust in your saving grace. Lord, we thank you um, for your word, that it addresses us where we are. Lord, help us to to know your voice. Um, Help us to run home to you. Um, Help us to stop running between the the camps of of law and license, Uh, but, but rather make us into your disciples, people that follow you, that stay close to you. Lord, we we thank you for your grace that was shown to us. Um, through your your son, we pray um, pray all of these things in his name. Amen.